You're listening to Elk Point Baptist Church. Subscribe to our podcast to hear every sermon and like us on Facebook by searching Elk Point Baptist Church, located in Elk Point, South Dakota. In Romans 9 this morning, I want to continue preaching out of Romans 9 and hope to uh, finish Romans 9 uh, this morning. And of course, there's it's impossible to have done full justice to this chapter or to any for that matter as far as the time it would take, but trying to hit some of the highlights and deal with some of these difficult passages and principles fill in here because we are dealing with the sovereignty of God here in Romans chapter number 9. There's a, a question that's raised as it gets to chapter number 9 because chapters 1 through 8, chapters 1 through 3 of the book of Romans deals with uh, how that all mankind are lost. It begins with chapter 1 emphasizing in particularly that the heathen are indeed lost. Uh, chapter 2, how that the Jew is lost. And then chapter 3 concludes that all men have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All men need salvation. And then, praise God, just like these girls sang about this morning, the Lord, it talks about verses 4, or chapters 4 through 8, begins to tell us about how uh, God provided this wonderful uh, justification and sanctification and forgiveness and all the, the wonderful truths of our salvation are concerned there. And it just goes to such a high mark there in Romans chapter number 8. But the whole point is the rejoicing of Jew and Gentile alike. But the Jew begins to question. There's a question that's raised. Well, wait a second. What about us? What about uh, all the promises? Going back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and, and David and so forth. Is that all said and done? And I'm glad to tell you today that that is not. Uh, there is a popular teaching today about what's called re- replacement theology, uh, replacement theology or secessionism, uh, and it's just a false doctrine, is all it is. But it is a very popular doctrine in our day. Uh, bottom line, I will say this right now: that God is not done with Israel, uh, and it's an awesome thing because we read that where we sang that song, "Ancient Words," and folks, these ancient words that we open up this morning, this this Bible uh, reads ahead of tomorrow's headlines. And I'm telling you, when you read the prophecy, I'm, I'm, I've been going through Jeremiah. I and now I'm in Ezekiel. Uh, and it's amazing when you read about what God said He would do with the nation of Israel that He has done with the nation of Israel, scattering them, judging them. And did you know that the Bible actually said one of the judgments is that He would, that he would have it to where, the, to, to where all the world would hate you, basically? And if you look in the world, did you ever ask yourself, where does anti-Semitism come from? Why does that seem to be so inbred in people throughout the world? It's just an amazing thing. However... God is regathering His people Israel uh, in the land of Israel. And so it's just an amazing thing when you look at uh, the, the, the two cities that are mentioned the most in the Bible are Jerusalem and the other. Anybody know what it is? Babylon. Two, two cities mentioned more than two other cities. Babylon is in Iraq. Uh, and so Iraq, Iran, which is in the Bible, it's referred to as Persia. All these are major players in Bible prophecy, and they have become major players in the last generation or so. Uh, but today, I want to look here about the sovereignty of God, and we've been looking at God choosing a nation. He chose Jacob. He chose Isaac to make a nation out of. He didn't choose one to be saved and one to not be saved. He was choosing to make a nation out of those. Um, but we're going to start reading here in verse number 14. And I want to try to cover this uh, as quickly, but not too quickly, uh, to where we miss anything. But the Bible says here in verse 14, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. In other words, for God to choose Jacob instead of Esau, for God to choose Isaac instead of Ishmael, is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For He saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that 
runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that, thou, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, whom he will, he hardeneth. Now we preached a whole message about Pharaoh, and I'll just tell you this real quickly: that when you study the account that's being referred to right here, the uh, the ten times, twenty times it refers to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Ten times Pharaoh's hardening his own heart. Ten times God is referring to uh, Pharaoh uh, hardening Pharaoh's heart. But Pharaoh hardened his own heart all the way to through the fifth plague. God never hardened his heart through that time. Pharaoh kept rejecting God, rejecting God, hardening his heart against God. And then ultimately his heart was hardened by God. Uh, and we preached a little bit about that next week. That may make it on the podcast um, eventually. But, uh, but then uh, we, we go on into this section that he's dealing with. And I want to deal with these first 14 to 18 verses uh, in, in the way of introduction. Then I want to try to give you the, the closing of the chapter. As we look at this, I believe there's some questions that he's saying that the Jew is asking. And we may ask the same questions as we look at some of these verses. I think some of the uh, questions could be paraphrased this way that the Jews were asking that sometimes man may ask. And that is this, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? Or the question, is God wrong in what He's doing? Is God wrong in what He's doing? Uh, which is to say, God, are you making a mistake? That's kind of the question that He's raising here. He's saying, you may ask this question. Now, I do want to say this quickly. Uh, you know, a lot of people condemn questioning God uh, at all. That you should never ask God why. Uh, but I would challenge that notion uh, just because of one, or not just because, but starting maybe with the fact that Jesus on the cross said, My God, my God, why? But now there's, there, there's different ways to ask questions. Is that not true? There's different ways to phrase questions. There's different spirits in which questions are asked. And the way the questions are being posed to God in this chapter are not justified whatsoever. I think that we can have some questions legitimately to God. Why? Especially if we're really looking for answers. Sometimes our, our, some people ask questions. They're rhetorical questions, right? God asks rhetorical questions oftentimes. But we ask why, but we're not saying why God help me to understand. We're just basically saying, God, you're wrong in this. And of course, that is not, that, that's what He's been, been addressed here uh, in this. So, now... When we talk about the sovereign will of God, and I want to say something else about this, these passages that's interesting. Ironically, the message that's given to these passages are presented as God's cruelty and unfairness. After all, we read about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. We read about God having mercy on whom He will have mercy. In just a moment, uh, Lord willing, we will read about vessels, of, uh, vessels that are fitted to destruction and vessels fiddled, fitted to grace. Uh, so ironically, this message is presented as God's cruelty and unfairness. But in truth, understanding this chapter will actually be teaching us about His matchless mercy. That's what we find here. But we've got to understand it. and we can't, We've got to consider the context of chapters 9, 10, and 11. Uh, I won't be able to get to it this morning. But we know chapter 10. God doesn't change His mind from 9 to 10 when He says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's the same theme that's following through. And going all the way back to the Old Testament. That's why we've been studying this for what it has. Now, God is sovereign. And therefore, God does whatever He pleases. 
Since He is God, what He does is always right and cannot be legitimately questioned by men who are limited in intelligence and in knowledge and whose moral and spiritual capacities are impaired by sin. It is not our right to say that God must choose in a certain way or that God is wrong for choosing at all. Uh, God has a sovereign plan and He's working it out according to His sovereign will. Uh, God's choice is based on His own righteousness. Therefore, God did not make a mistake when He chose Esau or Isaac and when He chose Jacob and because God cannot make a mistake. Now, when we talk about the sovereign will of God, especially in the context of this, we need to understand once again, when we talk about God doing that which He pleases, in the context of the chapter, He's choosing a, a people through which to have a nation. He's choosing a people through which uh, to whom He's going to raise up a government. So this isn't necessarily a conversation of salvation because I'll tell you what God's... The Bible teaches us clearly what God's will is for all mankind and that's to be saved as far as salvation is concerned. But when it comes to the way that God is working out the nations and working out His plan for the end times, folks, that's His sovereign will and He's doing and He's working as He pleases. Understand that. Now, one thing in God's sovereign will, God, a part of God's will is not to make is not to overtake your will in regards to salvation. God will never make anyone uh, trust Him as Savior. Uh, his sovereign will does not, in His sovereign will I should say, He has chosen not to do such a thing. Now, uh, when we look about Isaac and Jacob that I've referred to already, it was not their merit, but God's mercy. And so, when we get to this passage, how do you feel personally when you read these verses? When he says, when God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy? Uh, how do you feel about that? And I will harden whom I will harden. It's important if we're going to understand what's being said there, if we go back to when it was said. This was said, this is a quotation taken directly out of Exodus chapter 32 and verse number 10. Now, the context of Exodus chapter number 32, folks, God is on Mount Sinai. Moses is on Mount Sinai with the Lord, basking in the glory of God. Receiving the Ten Commandments. Receiving and, and having this wonderful fellowship with God Almighty. All of a sudden, in the midst of this, there's an interruption. And in verse 10, the Bible says, Now therefore, let me alone. That, I, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. Wait, what? I'm up here getting the Ten Commandments, all of a sudden God just says, you know what? Get down. I'm done with the nation of Israel. I'm going to make a new nation through you. What had happened? While Moses was up here with God, while the people waited for him, by the way, I'm working on a message about how that waiting for God is never wasting time. Aaron and the people, they got tired of waiting. And so they made a golden calf and began to worship that golden calf. And began to say, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of Egypt. And so they turned to idolatry. And I'm telling you, there was a lot of um, uh, uh, promiscuity and a lot of other bad things that were happening in connection with that at that moment. And so God said, No, that's it. 
So Israel made a golden calf to worship, and it was because of Moses' interceding that God spared the nation. The psalmist refers to God sparing Israel in Psalm 106, verse 23. Therefore, he said that he would destroy them had not Moses chosen, Moses, his chosen, stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath lest he should destroy them. So, in other words, Moses interceded. And because God is sovereign, it's totally in his right to do as he pleases. In other words, he could have destroyed the nation of Israel. But then in Exodus 33 verse 19, the Bible says, And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious unto thee. And listen to this, I will be gracious uh, to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. What's the context? It's a glorious context. The context is this. There's a people that deserve judgment. There's a people that had sinned. There's a people that had crossed the line. And God is saying, I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. He's saying, yes, they have done wrong, but I will have mercy on these people. He had already had mercy. He would already had grace. He could have destroyed them and been totally just. But what he's trying to remind them of is this. Israel began to think the reason they were chosen by God is because of their merit. They thought they were special. They thought they had done something to deserve this. But God's just reminding them, hey, from the very beginning, it was mercy. Amen. So what is He saying? The, the, the context of the passage is simply saying this. This is the mercy of God. And so that, that's, that's a little bit of an example of the sovereignty of God. Then there's an explanation of the, of the sovereignty of God. Look at verse number 19, if you would, with me. The Bible says, Wilt thou say unto me, Why does he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? But, uh, or nay, but old man, thou art, uh, who art thou that replies against God? Shall the thing formed say to, the, to, that, to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Verse 21, Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Verse 22, What if God, willing to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy, which He had uh, afore prepared unto glory, even us whom He hath called, not, to, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Now, there's a lot to be said here, but, but, but uh, the question I've kind of already addressed that, that, addressed that they were questioning God on, uh, but the question they have, it supposes that man is, the, the creature is wise enough to question his Lord. The Bible's saying that the clay doesn't ask the potter what's he doing in that sense. And so neither does the creature ask the Creator what he's doing in this sovereign sense. And so when God is doing, is working, God is always working right. Now, three points that I want to emphasize to you today. Uh, it's like the man climbing through the barbed wire fence. Three points and we're through. Amen? I'm going to give you three points today out of this passage and then we'll be dismissed. Number one, what are some points that we learn here in connection with the sovereignty of God? Number one, in verse 22, we learn the patience of God. God's patience. His long-suffering. What if God, willing to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long-suffering. Pharaoh is the example that's then used here. Look as we um, 
Or, I'm sorry, we've already uh, dealt with Pharaoh, but, but when you consider Pharaoh here, what you find out is that Pharaoh had ample opportunities to repent. But Pharaoh refused. He had opportunity to repent, but he refused. He refused to acknowledge that what he was seeing was indeed the finger of God. In other words, that, that term comes from the magicians, the sorcerers that surrounded Pharaoh. And alas, they even said, Pharaoh, this is the very finger of God. But he refused to see that. Those who do not come to Christ are the same way. Like Pharaoh, they may ultimately pay some kind of lip service, but if, if you refuse to respond to his outstretched hand, folks, it's on you. The point is this, God's patience. One principle about the sovereignty of God, one principle about this God that we know, He is a patient God. He's a long-suffering God. Our God does not fly off the handle. Our God does not just do something then all of a sudden ha have regrets. See, the Bible talks about how that we can be angry and sin not. Uh, we can. There, there is a righteous kind of anger, folks. But I'll tell you one thing. The flying off the handle kind of anger is never a righteous kind of anger. Uh, but God doesn't have that kind of anger. He doesn't have that kind of wrath. God is a long-suffering, patient God. God gives you opportunity. God gives you a chance. Even as we consider the heathen, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter number 1 that they have creation as a witness. Now you can't be saved through creation, but through acknowledging creation, acknowledging, uh, and there, I know several testimonies of people that have looked up to the heavens and basically said, said that, it got, it, that whoever made that is a God that I want to know. Uh, and uh, you know, I've given illustrations about that, but, but that's true. So they, they acknowledge creation. God has given creation as a witness to the whole world. He's given conscience as a witness to the whole world. Everybody knows there's a right and wrong. Now, man's conscience can be seared. Man can get to the point to where he no longer uh, feels uh, wrong. Man can get to the point to where they are upset about you know, the killing of some tree frog, but are uh, just vehemented on fire about killing babies at birth. Man can get all goofed up in conscience. Uh, understand that. But nonetheless, God is giving creation, God is giving conscience, and those are supposed to lead us to the canon, the collection of the Word of God where we can hear the truth, hear the Gospel, and be saved. I mean, listen, we have opportunity. We have opportunity to be saved. You may be here today and you are not saved. Let me tell you something. God is long-suffering. God will give you an opportunity. Uh, I've heard before that there's a very small percentage of people that actually trust Christ the first time they have an opportunity to. I mean, I wonder how many of you, maybe you did. But maybe, was it the first time somebody had said, hey, Jesus loves you and you need to be saved? Did you just say, hey, well, sign me up? You know, usually, man, we may come to church and we may fight against it. We may, uh, we, we may be uh, deceived in our religion and we may continue, decide to determine to continue on down that road. Let me tell you something. God's long-suffering. He gives opportunity throughout the Word of God. Notice this. Even with, with whether, it, whether it be Nineveh, whether it be Canaan's land, whether it be any of the awful judgments that you read about in the Old Testament, God always gave a warning. God gave years. The, the, the affair between Pharaoh and Moses, that was close to a year uh, that God was given Pharaoh. Working miracles in the sight of Pharaoh. See, it is not an accident when we talk about the sovereignty of God. It is no accident that you were born where you were born. It's no accident that you've had an opportunity to hear this message today. 
and that you've had the opportunity to hear other messages. It's no accident that God has put something within you to where maybe you've even just wondered, there's got to be more to life than what I'm living. Even though you say, oh, I've believed in God. Yes, but have you trusted Christ as Savior? Have your sins been forgiven? Do you know Him? See, it's no, it's no accident that you hear that. It's God working. Amen. Make no mistake about it. This is God working. It's in His long-suffering. He gives, we preached about last week, He, he gives a space to repent. So we see God's patience, but we also see this, man's plight. Man's plight. Look again with me in verse 22. What if God, willing to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? We see God's patience, His long-suffering. We see man's plight fitted for destruction. When you, when you study the word usage here, when you study the grammar, what you find out is the fitted for destruction. It's not that these people have been fit for destruction by God as if God had prepared uh, those vessels for wrath in contrast with those that He's prepared for mercy. That's not what's been said here. God, you mark this down. God does not create people in order to damn them. There's people out there today that teach that. They teach that that before people were ever born, God has made the decision for them whether or not they would go to heaven or whether or not they'd go to hell. And there's no choice to be had. Uh, folks, that is not scriptural. Uh, that is not scriptural at all. Folks, it is not God's will that any should perish. Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world. Amen. The Great Commission tells us to go out and preach to all the world. Uh, God did not. God never has had one person come into this world that He may damn them. They all have hope. Whoever we are, we, the, the thing is, the, the, now why do I talk about man's plight? What, is, what are the vessels fitted for destruction? You know what they are? That's us. See, we all were born sinners. Again, remember context. In other words, what's being talked about? What's around what's being talked about? You get to chapter 5 of Romans, just go a few pages over, and you'll find out that the Bible says we were born into this world as sinners because of Adam's sin. So we were born fitted for destruction because the wages of sin... It's death. Destruction. It's hell. Now, we were indeed... But did you know, that, you know that God truly is just? Did you know that people don't go to hell for Adam's sin? We're sinners because of Adam's sin. But we go to hell because of our own sin. Because we are sinners by birth. But we soon become sinners by choice. By the way, if, 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 you want to, if you want to know the reason that... Uh, by the way, the Bible does not teach infant baptism by any means. Uh, but some people believe that infant baptism is a way to save uh, the baby's soul or something. But again, that's all made up and it's not in God's Word. Uh, but understand this. Uh, I, I remember I, I shared this uh, with, with you before, but uh, years ago I was a chaplain at a hospital up in Pierre, South Dakota. And I remember when they were going through uh, the orientation with me and just kind of walking me through each floor uh, just on an individual basis... They brought me to the, uh, the uh, maternity ward or whatever you call it. And uh, when they brought me up there, we, we came up and they said, Oh, and over here is the water just in case you need to do an emergency baptism. I'd never heard of such a thing, an emergency baptism, you know. Uh, 
But, uh, but of course, the idea, and, and I said right there, by the way, you said, what'd you do? I said, I'm not doing that, amen? And I said, I will not do an emergency baptism, by the way, because uh, this isn't baptism for one thing, because baptism is immersion for another thing. This is not biblical to sprinkle an infant. But the, the, but the idea is this. Why does, your fam- Why does some of your family get so bent out of shape that you didn't have your kids baptized? Because they've been taught that if they don't get baptized, they're going to go to hell or purgatory and whatever the case may be. So, man, you've got to get them baptized. But let me tell you something. Those kids aren't going to... They're, they're sinners because of Adam. They're not going to go to hell because of Adam's sin. They are born sinners. That's obvious. You ever watch the way your kids or grandkids behave? Uh, it's obvious they were born sinners, but it's not Adam's sin they go to hell for. And even though they're sinners as youth, it's when we become sinners by choice. This is why we are vessels fitted for destruction. We're fitted for destruction because of sin. And let me tell you something else about sin. The damning sin. Somebody wants to know, what's, what's, what's the worst sin? I, I don't know that there's a worse sin. But I'll tell you the sin that condemns people to hell. You know what it is? Because the Bible does talk about sin and not sins. I mean, as far as uh, the wages of sin is death. The Bible says this in John chapter 3, verse 18. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. People aren't going to hell because they're drunkards. People aren't going to hell because they're adulterers. People aren't going to hell because they're murderers. They're going to hell because of unbelief. That they failed to put their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. That's why people go to hell. That's why people are not. Uh, that's why people just sitting on a church pew trying to keep uh, live a good life. That was the problem with the Jews. See, the Jews had the Ten Commandments. They had the law. And they tried to keep the law. Which is a futile effort. Man cannot keep the law. Well, I've done pretty good. Have you broken one? The Bible says if you've offended in one point of the law, you're guilty of the whole law. Once you've broken the law, you've broken the, the law. Period. It's over. Oh, but I'm trying. We'll keep on trying. But that's not... And listen, there's nothing wrong, by the way. You look at the Ten Commandments. I mean, I mean, I believe in them, right? But the purpose for the Ten Commandments is to show us that because of our sin, we can't live up to that. It shows us the holy standard of God. But the Jews felt justified because they were trying. They were trying. And they felt like they were doing better than other people because they would snub up their noses. They, you know, they were, they were a pharisaical people. There's a lot of church people like that. A lot of church people like that. Amen. How are they justified? We go to church. We're trying. Well, how are you doing? <laughs> How's it going with your trying business? I mean, I, I work with some of them, and man, I'm telling you, man, they need to try harder. But they can try as hard as they want to. It's not going to work. They can abstain from whatever uh, meat they want to on Fridays come Lent. It's not going to work. Amen. I mean, it doesn't, it's, it's not going to make a difference. I'm telling you, it's, it's, if, if you're not keeping it 100%, you're doomed. If you're fulfilling it, you're in good shape. But if you failed in one point, by the way, you're not fulfilling it. Amen. I wouldn't ask for a show of hands of those who have. Um, because you know, what, you know what the Bible says about the Ten Commandments, by the way? You know what Jesus said? He said, you've heard in olden time where, where, where they said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, see, Jesus deals with the heart. If a man looks on a woman to lust after her, he's committed adultery already in her heart. He said, if you hate your brother, you're a murderer. I mean, it just goes on right down through the list. And so we talk about the, 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 the depravity of man, man's plight. God's patience, man's plight, fitted for destruction. The sin of unbelief. So you could try to be religious, you can be a church person all you want to, but if you have not put your, if your faith is in baptism, if your faith is in the church, if your faith is in your good works, 
Folks, you are still fitted for destruction. Furthermore, when people reject the Lord's grace in the way that Pharaoh did, they become fit objects. The idea behind uh, the, the fitted for destruction is ripe for judgment. Ripe for judgment. When you hear the message and continue to rebel against the message, you're right for judgment. So we see uh, God's patience, His long-suffering. We see man's plight. Number three, we see God's promise. We see God's promise. The bad news is we're all sinners and we're all fitted for destruction. The good news is we have a promise. Now, if you look back into our text here, notice what the Bible says here in verse 25. As He saith also in Osi, which is the Greek interpretation of Hosea. I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall they, they be called my, there shall they be called the children of God. That's Hosea chapter number one. God's word, his promise. Uh, number two, uh, he gives another passage here, Isaiah. Uh, 27, Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel, though the number of the children, be, children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. And that's, that's in Isaiah chapter 1 also. Now, God's promise. He gives us His Word. By the way, that's why this whole thing of the new covenant wasn't some new thing. The New Testament, it's not a new thing. It was something God was planning from the beginning. And what does it give us? God's promise gives us two things. And I'm going to be done. Number one, a divine opportunity. The conclusion is, is that Gentiles are as much an object of God's mercy as the Jewish people. God has always, always loved this world. For God so loved the world, that God didn't just all of a sudden say, you know what, I think I love those people. No. You know why I know that? Because the Bible says that Jesus Christ is as of a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So Calvary, Jesus and the Father saw Calvary from the foundation of the world. What's that mean? For God so loved the world all the way back then. Every man, woman, boy and girl that has ever been born into this world have all been objects of the love of God. His dealings with Israel have never been at the expense of His love to all. Now Israel's reaction has been at the expense of His love to all. But it's not God's dealings with Israel that has been the expense. It's been Israel's reaction to that. See, God clearly revealed in the Old Testament there would be a great Gentile revival. And the point that God is trying to make is that He's giving hope and salvation to those who are fitted for destruction. I wish I had time to read Ephesians chapter 2. I encourage you to read it later. It's a very, it's a very short chapter. You could read it just literally in just a minute or so. But it begins by saying, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, who in time past walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom we've all had our conversation in time past, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath. In other words, fitted for destruction. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4, But God. But 
God who is rich in mercy, for with His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And it goes on to, to further say uh, that how He has broken down the middle wall of partition between the Jew and the Gentile. That wall that separated the Gentiles from the temple, God said God's broken that down and we all have access. Ephesians 2 is an explanation, I feel, of what's been said in Romans chapter number 9, 10, and 11. And so, uh, the names that God uses here. Okay, so he's, He refers to Osi. He refers to Hosea. Hosea's children. Now, names are significant in the Bible. Now, not only did God make Hosea go marry a woman by the name of Gomer, you know what she said when Hosea showed up and proposed to her? Well, golly! And uh, then she got pregnant and she bore three kids and she said, Shazam! None of that's true. But he had to marry a woman. The part that is true, he had to marry a woman named Gomer. Now, she had three, she was a prostitute. She bore three children to Hosea. The first, na- first one's name was Jezreel. The second one's name, uh, Jezreel means God scatters, but it also means God sows. Then the second was Lo Ruhamah, and that means unloved. And then there was Lo Ami, and that means not my people. That was the names of these children. It meant uh, God scatters, unloved, not my people. But it's, it's cool that God, that God hearkens back to that in Romans chapter number 9 because later, in grace, God changes their names. Amen. Now, the name Jezreel stays the same, but it's applied differently. God, Jezreel means scattered. That refers to Israel. You're scattered throughout the earth. But then God says, uh, Jezreel, in forgiveness and in mercy, it's going to be God sows. I'm going to sow you throughout the nations. You're going to be a blessing and not a curse to the world. Uh, but then with the other two is a good picture of the Gentiles. The one, Lo Ruhamah, means unloved. But God says, you know what? No longer call her Lo Ruhamah. Just call her Ruhamah. And you know what that means? Loved. And no longer call low Amy, low Amy, drop off the low and just call her Amy. I'm saying her, I can't remember if it's a boy or girl. Uh, forgive me. But what God is saying is, before you weren't my people, now you're my people. Before you were unloved, but I loved you. Amen. And I gave myself for you. It's just a great picture there in the Old Testament. So God saw the conversion. He saw the Gentiles. He saw the church. The Lord will keep His promise and He will sow sow scattered Israel into their land. And an unloved people will be loved and will be called the people, the children of the living God. In Christ, Jews and Gentiles are lifted higher than anything the nation of Israel ever know. We are the sons of the living God. And then lastly, so we see in God's promise, divine opportunity, but we also see destructive obstinance. Destructive obstinance. Notice what the Bible says in verses 28 through 29. For He will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness. And because in a short work will the Lord make 
uh, the, the, a short work where the Lord made upon the earth. Verse 29, as Isaiah said before, had he not preserved a remnant, they would have been like Gomorrah. And the point is this. The principle that we see here is God's patience with man. God is patient with man. That includes you and me. He's patient. He gives you opportunity. But do not, make, do not mistake His long-suffering for license. Do not say, well, I've sinned and so far things are working out okay. Don't say whether you're saved or unsaved. You may have fallen into some sin. And you may, you may have committed that sin and when you first committed it, you were scared to death. But then nothing happened. And it was all fine. And so you say, huh, well, maybe I'll try it again. God didn't strike me dead. Do not mistake God's patience for license. So God is long-suffering. Man's plight, we're fitted for destruction. We're all sinners. God's promise, we can all be saved. There's a divine opportunity. We can become God's people. We can be loved. And we are loved. But then there's a destructive obstinance. In other words, it's this. The Bible puts it this way in Proverbs 29 verse 1. He that being often reproved, hardeneth his neck, shall suddenly... See, the Bible says God will make a quick work. See, God gives time. He gave time to the inhabitants of the earth during the days of Noah. He gave 120 years. He gave longer than that. He gave 900 something years. It, it wasn't until Methuselah died that the, that the flood came. The, the man that lived longer than anybody. But when it came, it came quick. It came quick. See, judgment... It may take a while to get here, but I'm telling you, when it comes, it's coming. He that being often reproved, hardeneth his neck, shall suddenly be destroyed. Destructive obstinance. And so as we consider this, there's a principle to be understood. The stumbling stone that Israel had, as you go on through the end of this verse, is verse 32, 31 through 33 talks about God laying a, a stumbling stone. The stumbling stone to the Israelite uh, was... Uh, that they believe since they possessed the law of Moses, and again I mentioned that already, they were trying to keep up to it, live up to it, that that made them justified. But to add to the problem, when Israel's Messiah did come, they rejected Him. See, the Jews stumbled over Christ. The Jews wanted a lion, but the Father sent a lamb. The Jews wanted a throne, but God gave them a cross. Israel stumbled at the cross. And I'll ask you today, what are you stumbling over? Are you relying on the family that you were born into? The church that you belong to? Maybe some other law that you're trying to keep like baptism or church membership or what have you? Maybe you're trying to keep the Ten Commandments. Whatever it may be, folks, what will you do when His grace is revealed to you? What will you do? Will you reject it? Will you put it off? Will you harden your heart? Will you be indifferent? Will you be unmovable? Or will you humble yourself and say, I need to be saved? Let me tell you something very clearly. He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed. God was merciful with Pharaoh. God gave Pharaoh opportunity. But there come a time where Pharaoh crossed the deadline. Judgment came. And I'm telling you folks, that's it. God's long-suffering... But judgment's coming. Amen. Judgment is coming for your sin. If you're not saved, I'm telling you, there's a literal fire burning hell awaiting you. A place that it is not God's will for you to go. 
But you deserve to go there. You know why? Because you're a sinner. You've sinned against God. I've sinned against God. I deserve to go there. But the reason I will not go there is because I've accepted God's forgiveness. Amen? I've heeded His mercy. It's nothing that I've done. I've looked to Him and I've looked to the cross and nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. And the Bible says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. By grace are you saved through faith. Listen, if you are not saved today, if you've never prayed and asked Christ to be your Savior today, I beg you to do so today. If you're trying to continue in some sin and you think it's okay, I'm telling you, judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. Let's all stand. That's not what God wants. God wants to forgive you. God will forgive you. He loves you. He is not waiting for you to straighten up for, you, for Him to love you. He loves you right now. He loved you before you were born. That never changes. But this morning, will you heed, will you take advantage of God's promise? Or will you harden your heart? Hardening your heart just simply means you're just going to be, in, it starts by meaning you're going to be indifferent. You're just going to be indifferent. You're going to be dismissive. You're going to try to get your mind right now on, on the food back there. You're going to try to get your mind on the ball. You're going to try to get distracted and think this doesn't really apply to me. If I can just get out of this invitation time, I'll be good. Folks, God's trying to speak to you today. Will you listen? Man, He wants to save you. He really does. Oh, how can God send anybody to hell, you say? What are you talking about? He will not interfere with your will. But He's going to make events happen in your life in such a way to where you can know that you need Him. But it's up to you. You can't point your... If you have to stand before the bar... I pray to God there's not one person here that stands before the great white throne judgment. Those, will be, those that go to hell will be called out of hell to stand before the great white throne judgment before they're, to be judged before they're cast into the lake of fire. I pray to God no one here will be in that number. But for those that will be there, they will not, you will not be able to point your hand at God and say, God, it was your fault. Because God's long-suffering. It's God's will that all men be saved. It's God's will that you be saved. And God's giving you an opportunity right now and let me tell you something. If you're not saved, I want to encourage you to do something right now. Listen to me. Just take one step out. You say, why do you, why, why do, you do the invitation? Why do people come up front to pray? Because I want to give people an opportunity to respond. I want to give people a chance to humble themselves. Because sometimes we can stand in our pride. But I tell you, it takes some humility to kneel. And if you're here today and you're not saved, if you just take one step out, if God's working on your heart, if you just take one step toward the altar, I promise you the rest will be easy. Will you give in to God's will working in your heart, the Holy Spirit of God, or will you reject Him? Please, I beg you not to harden your heart today. Child of God, don't harden your heart. Unsaved person, do not harden your heart. He wants to save you today. Heavenly Father, I thank You, dear Lord. I thank You for Your long-suffering. I sure do deserve hell. I sure don't deserve to be saved. But I'm glad You saved me. I'm glad it's by grace and through, by grace through faith and by Your mercy. And I pray if there be anybody here today, God, that's not saved, God, I pray that right now, right now, you would help them. Help them to acknowledge their sin. And right where they stand, I pray, God, that they will humble their hearts 
and from their heart cry out in sincerity, Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner. Please forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart and life and be my Lord and my Savior. Because I know if they can pray that prayer from the heart, words are just words, but if from the heart they can believe, Lord, they can be saved today. Please help that one that you're working on. I do not want the, you do not want to judge them. You do not want to cast them into the lake of fire. It's up to them. Please help today, dear God, I pray.